welcome to the Saturday Down Top Podcast. He is Chris Marler. I am Alan Madeira. Marler, by the time that people will have listened to this, a Power 5 football team will play an actual game. Yes, Miami still counts as a Power 5 team. Miami is still there. By the way, it took me three days to realize that Tate Martell wasn't even listed on the depth chart for Miami. I have no idea what happened to that guy. Tathan Martell opened up a vape shop shop in Reno. I'm almost positive. I, I don't think you have to leave the state of Florida to open a vape shop, right? Yeah, it's called Mix Vape. It's like they actually sell mixtapes and vape. Uh, it's really big in the uh, the group that dresses like Gavin DeGraw in the summer, where they have a V-neck and a beanie on for no no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's huge in that community, from what I've heard. All right, good to know. Good to know. We have a lot to get to today. We recorded a great interview with D. Bob Air Bear, who I, I'm just gonna say it. He's a living LSU legend. Yeah, without a doubt. Why'd you say Hair Bear? Uh, Air Bear. Like Justin we call Air Justin Bear. Air Bear. Yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, yeah, T Bob A Bear is the best. He is. He he broke my heart and put it back together several times in this interview. It's fantastic. It's it's just absolutely fantastic. Really, really good stuff. We went all over the place with him. T Bob is someone who has seen a lot over the course of of his his time as yeah. as a player in, in the media, being close to that that team at, at LSU. So really, really good stuff with him. Yeah. Talking all, all sorts of different things. So that is at the end. We also have an SEC East Crystal Ball. And for those who are following along, we did the West the other day. Today is the East, and we're going to break down who we think is going to win. We got records. We have possible upsets. We have some trends that we're going to be looking for. And a little doomsday scenario that I teased the other day that we're going to get to today. Well, and what we need to say off the top of this, um, you know what, let me – talk a little bit about our friends first and then let me let me give the disclaimer i want to give the disclaimer after we talk about the positives okay positives is texas pete okay that it, tp i know the p stands for pete but it might as well stand for positives because it's a, it's one of the most positive things in my life i'll say that i think it would probably be the same for you texas pete whether it's the hot sauce the buffalo sauce the wing sauce all the above the texas pete dust go ahead and get yourselves a bottle get you a six pack for hot grill fall it's back and in, in just, oh, man, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, I don't know why I keep saying I can't wait either because I've already started. I've mm-hmm. already started several weeks in. Um, but make sure you go to TexasPeed.com today. Get yourself some new recipes. Get yourself some, you know what, upload some pictures to the old interwebs on the uh, on the line, okay? Just like they said in that uh, Vince Vaughn Owen Wilson movie. On the line, you can, you can exchange a gram, all those pictures of you home-gating, tailgating, whatever you want to call it. Make sure whatever you're doing, you sauce like you mean it this season. So, get some Texas Pete today. Now, here's the disclaimer. And I, we learned this the hard way the other night. Connor's going to hurt some feelings. I'm probably going to hurt some feelings. So, here's the deal. There's, there's three things that you need to know. One, in no way are we going to waste time arguing about who's going to finish in sixth and seventh place. Because as we learned on Twitter the other night, that is the dumbest thing possible. Hmm. Two, here's the other thing. We hate all your teams, and that's the only reason we would ever pick them not to win every game. That, that's the only reasonable solution. And three, all of your teams are going to go undefeated, and you're all going to live forever. There you go. You ready? I'm, I've been ready for a while, man. I'm, I'm yeah. good to go. Let's go through order finish first for the East. We'll kind of break down some of the discrepancies that we have and explain why I, I was really, really frustrated to be as low as I was on these three <laughs> teams. And Again, as I said the other day, and I'll say it again, 
You can come up with a number in your head for how many games you think a team should win. But until you actually sit down and break down game by game the entire schedule for the league, not just one specific team, you won't really know how you feel about a team. So let's start off at number seven. Sorry, Vandy. I got Vandy at 0-10. Yeah. This is where it starts to get murky. I have Mizzou finishing in sixth at two and eight. Who do you real quick? Who do you have them beating? Vandy and who? Arkansas. Ooh, see, I, I think they could win two games. I could see them going one and nine, it, but I could also I want to say they're going to beat Mississippi State just because of how Mississippi State fans acted the other day. Um, That's petty. But That's yeah. petty. We can't do that. We can't pick out of emotion. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you know, there's a lot of things we can't do out of emotion, but as we learned the other night, that's how some people operate. So I would say that um, I, I don't think they're they could, late in the season. I don't see them going on the road and beating Mississippi State. I don't see them beating Arkansas. Okay. So I can see one and nine here. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Five, South Carolina. Three and seven. Four. This is, again, ear muffet. I, I did not intend on having this, but this the way that the, that's the way that the chips fell. Yeah. Tennessee at four and six. I'll explain that in a minute. I'll explain that in a minute. I have Kentucky finishing in third at six and four. I have Georgia finishing at, at finishing second at nine and one. I have Florida finishing first at nine and one. I have Florida beating Georgia to win the East. <laughs> but we'll get to the doomsday scenario in a bit. I hated hated this when I do when I did the crystal ball and I broke down every single SEC game. That is going to be played this year. Mm-hmm. I hated how low I was on Mizzou, South Carolina, and Tennessee. And if you're one of those fans and you're listening to this, you're like, that dude is way wrong. He's going to be yeah. so off this year. I, I hear you. I really do. But then I kind of realized and I thought about this. While I do like some of the things, some of the elements that each of those teams have going for them, and they've kind of all been in that like, oh, are they going to win six, seven games? category, at least before we went to the conference-only schedule. Think about their games against 2019 bowl games. Bowl teams, rather. Mizzou, seven such games. South Carolina, seven. Tennessee, six. Think about how many games that each of those teams have against preseason AP Top 25 teams. Mizzou has five. South Carolina has six. Tennessee has five. This is the real kicker. Think about their record against Top 25 teams in the last three years. Mizzou is one in seven. South Carolina is 1 in 10. Tennessee is 2 in 10. That is why I think subconsciously I can't quite get there in a year like this with 10 SEC games. And for what it's worth, I fully expect those teams to prove me wrong at least once to win a game that I say, you know what, I don't see that game bouncing their way. I don't know if it's going to be the same level of like a South Carolina beating Georgia. But those upsets are going to happen, and I'm going to be wrong. I can fully admit that, especially in a year like this when we don't know what quarantines are going to look like and all of that stuff. But for those who are saying you're way too low on those three teams, okay, go through that schedule and tell me where you're finding six wins, seven wins, or anything like that because it is way, way more difficult to get there. It just is. I mean, Tennessee fans, I don't want to speak for you guys, but here's where I I think Tennessee fans are – are seeing their six to seven wins. South Carolina, win. Mizzou, win. Georgia, probably a loss because it's on the road. That's the only reason why. Kentucky at home, win. 
People don't think we we should have beaten Bama last year. Okay, Bama's at home this Pencil year. Pennsylvania, Kentucky for they, automatic they, win there. As a t- I'm doing a Tennessee fan oh, okay, going okay, through this. Okay, okay. Um, and, and this is not like a slight at Tennessee fans. I think this is just how we as fans think. Yeah. Okay, like yeah, yeah. Okay. And also, what Pruitt's done against uh, against Mark Stoops his first two years. For I sure. mean, you can't go unnoticed. Okay, so you have three wins there. I mean, people talk about that Bama game, but, you know, Jeremy Pruitt outcoached Nick Saban last year. So I put that as a maybe. But you still have three guaranteed wins. Arkansas, win. That's four. You have A&M at home. I don't think A&M's that good, so that's five. Uh, i tell you what. Auburn on the road, that's that's a toss-up. But, I mean, we want revenge in that game. That's six. Vandy on the road, that's seven. That's seven wins right there, brother. That's that's how this happens when you, when you go through it as a fan. Here's the thing that scares me for Tennessee fans. Um, this We posted this a while ago on SDS, and it was going through, and this is not to try to, like, you know, just bury a team or, or anything like that. Tennessee versus top 10 opponents since 2007 is 0-33. Only six of those games have been within one score. Think about that. Only six. So 27 of the 33 losses came by uh, came by two or more scores. I don't. I, I don't think Tennessee football is is going to be bad. I don't necessarily think they're going to be back. I think they're going to this kind of weird purgatory limbo where having the out of conference schedules and even an out of conference game against Oklahoma, I think, could have helped this team. I really do. I, I think that outside of Oklahoma, you have three guaranteed wins that would have been um, against what do you call it? Like the other non conference foes. I don't think that they would have been that far-fetched into saying they, they could have battled against a team like Oklahoma, even if it, even if it's on the road. This team has not done well against the conference. This team has not done well against their rivals. Um, and they haven't done so – they haven't done well against them in a very long time. And and so when you look that's at – That's like, the tough thing, yeah. That's the, that's the tough thing. And I think that there's still – like, I mean, what Jeremy, Jeremy Pruitt is bringing in with this recruiting class, there's I think they're still a year away in the same way that I said – Two, or last year, at the start of last year or two years ago, that, that Georgia, I thought, was still a year away from like with everything they were bringing in. I mean, it takes a lot to overhaul an entire program, it, it, like especially from a talent standpoint, to get even. Tennessee is closing the gap on Florida, in my opinion, from a talent standpoint. I don't I agree. see them. Do, I don't think they're doing that against against Bama or or Georgia, but I, I do think that they could. Get, I mean, listen, and Bama fans don't want to hear this, but like you're not going to beat Tennessee every year for the rest of your lives. I mean, they won 13 in a row. Like, it's just, it's not going to happen every single year for however long. So I think that that time is coming to an end. I don't think it's this year. I do I do worry that they had so much momentum going into the end of last year when they played a, the softest part of their schedule that there's, you know, from a, like a optimistic standpoint, yeah, man, if they didn't lose to BYU and Georgia State, they could have been 8-4 and four or 9-3 and three or whatever it was. But you look at the way that that schedule ends at the at like from last season, God, they could have easily been four and eight. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think Tennessee and Kentucky are really close. I really do. And, and if that if that's a flip game, and if yeah. Tennessee wins that game, then Tennessee's and five and five. Tennessee. Kentucky's five and five. Yeah, I have Kentucky winning that game, and that's kind of the the difference and the separator in that, and why that looks more lopsided right. than it probably is. You could say Tennessee's got one winning season in the SEC in the last twelve years. Which is an incredible thing to think about. And I realize that the counter-argument is, well, what about Kentucky? Kentucky has one winning record in SEC play in the last 40 years. And that happened, of course, in 2018. (laughs) 
Everybody yeah. remembers that. That's a good point. Here's, here's the issue, though, and why I say that I'd give Kentucky a little bit of an edge right now. We're talking about this Tennessee offensive line and how we think mm-hmm. it's got a lot of potential, and it does. And I think Trey Smith is better than any offensive line that even Kentucky has. And, and I think yeah. that that's, that's saying a lot, considering how highly I think of that Kentucky offensive line, especially those three studs that they have who are former four-star recruits as well. Yeah. But it's not about stars at this point, because Tennessee is hoping that offensive line can turn into what Kentucky was last year. Right. And that's the question that I still have about that group, and I still fi- need to figure out, all right, we have, we have bigger questions on, on the Tennessee side than we do on the Kentucky side. We're wondering who is going to become that big-time edge rusher after losing Daryl Taylor. Who is going to become that alpha dog in the locker room on the offensive side of the ball like Jawan Jennings was? What in the world is going to happen with their quarterback situation? Are we sure that Eric Gray can carry the ball 20 times a game and kind of be the guy? I find myself asking so many more questions wow. about Tennessee than I do about Kentucky. Whereas Kentucky, you know what they are at this point you really do and they have an identity that is we saw it play out last year and we saw it with a top 20 defense that played out and you could say oh well they're going to regress because they're going to play a little bit different you know that that style all that stuff (laughs) i don't know how much they're going to regress i really don't just because they return production on all three levels of that defense the front seven is really really good and is a a group that in my opinion you have a lot of those questions that are more answered where, you know, they have a, a guy yeah. like a Boogie Watson who's an established edge rusher in this conference. They have an established defensive tackle like Quentin Bohana who's capable of taking that next step. They have these guys who are proven cover guys on the outside. They just added a former, like, borderline five-star recruit in Kelvin Joseph to play cornerback yeah. who's going to be eligible this year. Like, Kentucky has these things that, yes, you could point to, look, Pruitt has had the head-to-head advantage against Mark Stoops, and Mark Stoops mm-hmm. is 1-6 against Tennessee. Like, that's a thing. Tennessee fans are right to be like, hey, you know what, Kentucky just not automatically. Yeah. I don't think Kentucky has returned a team like this during that time. During yeah, that time that he has had that streak. So that is why I give Kentucky a little bit of the edge. While I do believe that Pruitt's recruited extremely well, that's what I kept coming it back doesn't, to. But see, here's the thing, too. Pruitt has recruited extremely well, and that is going to benefit this program and and help this program turn the corner and, in my opinion, get back to Tennessee football that we are that, you know, at least I was accustomed to growing up to watching. I really believe that. But, like, I've said this repeatedly. Just because they're signing a class this season that will be on campus next year, none of that matters this season. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, all these four and five stars and all the three stars they have that bolster this class – that doesn't help this season. I, I tell you what, if there's a positive to all this, in, in my opinion, like where you talk about all the uncertainty, if there's a positive that I don't think that anyone is really, really bringing up enough, because because what ends up happening with all these these games, preseason especially, is we think we know how this year's going to be based off of how last year was or the year before and how that all stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, listen, that stat I threw out there about Tennessee, 0-33, there were several people that brought it up like, well, you got to think about all the coaching turnover and all that kind of stuff. And usually that kind of stuff is like, oh, that sounds like an excuse. But Tennessee football has been through the absolute ringer over the past decade. I mean, Derek Dooley, Lane Kiffin, Butch Effing Jones, all these things that have like been so detrimental to a program in the long term in the long term. And I think that that Jeremy Pruitt is really starting to help and, and build this thing back to where fans want it to be. If there's one thing that we're not talking about enough, it's that Jared Garantano is gonna finally have the same yep. face as an offensive coordinator year over year. And, and that is something that has not happened in his entire career. That's the it, one like, question we don't have for this yeah. for this offense, really. I mean, 
They return both coordinators. Uh, you know, Derek Ainsley is, is very, very young and stuff like that. But at the same time, Cheney in year two, what kind of growth? Because I say it all the time. We talk about Kellen Mond, how I think he's going to make this huge leap in year three of Jimbo. And maybe he does. But but Garantano having the same face and the same coach and the same familiarity with somebody that's like, hey, by the way, this is what your check down should be. This is what you can check out of here. And, and here's what you should be looking for in the defense if you come to the line of scrimmage. And, and while that's happening, because I can't imagine like having all that change and trying to cipher through all those things it, like in your mental Rolodex and then also still running for your GD life every play behind that offensive line that was just for so much of his career. It is now not a liability in the same way. Exactly, exactly. So I think from that standpoint, Tennessee is a team, and there's a couple. There's like there's three teams in this in this division that I think could really be seven and three to three and seven, and, and it wouldn't surprise me either way. It honestly wouldn't surprise me either way. Kentucky, Tennessee, and and people are aren't gonna like this. But I said it the other day, same thing. Like the more I look at this team and the schedule, is South Carolina, and we have written off South Carolina because Muschamp and how bad he's looked, and as a head coach, he should have been fired already, maybe, and all this other stuff. You brought the point about about Mark Soups against Tennessee being one and six, right? Will Muschamp is seven and one all time against Tennessee. Seven and one. That is the first game of the season, and I think when you look at South Carolina. And they have that defense is going to be so much better than people give it credit for. When you have two five stars on the defensive line, one a freshman, one a redshirt freshman, they are going to impact that team. Like it's it's somebody that I, I don't know if you made the point or Beard's what? I was a sophomore. Zach Pickens played played his full allotment last year. Sure. Okay. So not important, but yes, you're one. I know. Two. Go ahead. Absolutely. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. So so but you have you have two five stars that just like breathe life into that defense. On, on Will Muschamp defense, which is, he oversees that especially. J.C. Horn is. The best football player you don't know enough about in this conference besides maybe Nick Bolton. Like that kid. He's getting first round his... love. Yeah. Yeah, and and he's he's very very good. I don't know how he hasn't had an interception yet, but I think that can change. Eric Stokes <laughs> hasn't either. It happens. Yeah. It happens. So so it's one of those things where I, I think he's going to be really good, and and we expect South Carolina to be bad because of what we saw last year, or maybe the year before. Like the ceiling is seven wins, and I've I've been one to say that, but this South Carolina team, you open up against Tennessee, and what could. In the same way that Kentucky game has been one of those pivotal game, pivotal games for this program, this this team could be so maker. This game could be so make or break for either program going into this season. The rest of the way, because we talk about how important it is to get off to a good start. If if South Carolina loses to Tennessee, then they got to go play Florida, and they still get Auburn and LSU before the bye week. Tennessee, they open with South Carolina. If they lose that game, they get Mizzou next, but then they have Georgia, Kentucky, Bama after that. And so it's it's one of those things where I think this kind of, this win could propel a team early on and and have long lasting impacts for the rest of the season, or it could be a let me see what time we're at here like man like like we lose this game we're gonna be one and four before the bye week and then and then what? That's what I that's what I wonder about with South Carolina and I wonder about that friction potentially with Bobo and how that dynamic is going to work with Colin Hill and if it's gonna be this. This, okay. this constant battle about Muschamp and, and Halinski and wanting Halinski yeah. to succeed and how is that going to work if if Bobo's if Bobo's like you know what I need to give Colin Hill the keys to the offense and 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 maybe it doesn't look great from the starter if they lose yeah. a game and how that how Muschamp gets involved and I think that's kind yeah. of an, an underrated thing of of a defensive minded coach and wanting to micromanage the offense and, and have yeah. his input and all signs point to to Muschamp saying look I'm I'm letting Bobo have control over this and I'm yeah. letting him run this. But I agree with you in that in a year like this 
where you don't know who's going to be kind of checking out mentally a year in which eligibility doesn't count. There are a lot of other just quirky factors at play here, obviously. Which team checks out after getting off to maybe not the, the start that they were expecting? Something well, worth keeping in mind. And we definitely think that, for whatever reason, we, we give credit to thinking that Tennessee can, can handle that. We think Kentucky can handle that. But we don't think South Carolina can. And, and I do want to say one thing, and I'm, I'm going to admit something that I shouldn't, but I'm going to. Oh, boy. A couple weeks ago on this podcast, you asked who I thought the starter was going to be at quarterback. And I, I was just entrenched in this Halinski versus, versus Doty back and forth. In Doty's playing receiver, man. And I, oh, I, said, I said that. I was like, they're going to find a way to get this kid on the field, whether it's like a John Rice plumbing situation or what. And the reason why I was – and you were like, you don't think Colin Hills has a chance? And I was like, nope. I forgot Colin Hill was, was transferring into South Carolina. And here's here's where I think that in a year where you have so much uncertainty, the familiarity standpoint is so important. And I should have just, in, in the moment, admitted I was wrong, and I didn't. I can admit it now. But I tell you what, man, if that kid can, can man, he has to be a game manager. The receivers aren't elite, in my opinion. I think they're, they're a good receiving core. Um, they, they lack in a lot of... They lack in a lot of places. On the They're offense. struggling at receiver. Let's call it what it is. You've yeah, got two quarterbacks fair. that are lining up at receiver. South Carolina, now without Ortre Smith as well, who's opting out for this season. They lost Brian Edwards, who was super valuable and underrated nationally. Yeah. They are hurting at the wide receiver position. Sure. Let's it, make no mistake about it. They could. They should just run the triple option like like where they can throw the ball as well and just be like the best flag football team ever and just have to carry and join her. And, and Doty in the Wildcat. Line That's all they should do. Yes, <laughs> That's do all it. they should do. But... Um, I think I think they're going to struggle on offense. I think there's going to be times where they definitely struggle on offense. But I also believe their offense was so bad last year. And I talked to Chris Phillips, our buddy from from the Spurs Up Show, and he he brought up the fact. He goes, "Do you think this team can average 20 points on offense?" And I was like, "Jesus Christ, man! If that is if that's where the benchmark is, 20 points, I yes, I think they can average more than 20 points with Mike Bobo at the helm. I I, I just I and I stand by that. I don't think." That is such a low number. I can't even imagine. It's against all SEC competition, though. I mean, that's still a- though, it's twenty points. I know. I know. Twenty points. I know. So, and he brought the point too, and, and a lot of people say the same thing. I mean, it, they scored twenty three to beat Georgia, and and that was part of that was on a on a on a pick six. Now that being said, I think it was twenty three. But regardless, I think this offense can be improved from how abysmal they were a season ago. I, I really do, and I think this defense is going to be way more improved. You don't look up on that schedule and you see Clemson. You don't look on that schedule and you see Alabama. I think those two those two things are very big positives. And then you look at this, the rest of the schedule, you're like Auburn, A&M, games that aren't like – those aren't impossible to overcome and impossible games to win. But they are – I'm pretty sure South Carolina has never beaten either one of those teams or they haven't beaten A&M in like six years or something crazy like that. I think that this is, is one of those years for South Carolina where they could easily be a part of that same group with Kentucky and Tennessee where we could make like a, a couple things bounce their way. They could be six and four. They could be five and five. Yeah, I, I, I purely believe that. I think this team is going to be way better because of the fact that we're all counting them out. In the same way that we do with Kentucky every year, in the, in the same way that, that, that some do with, I don't know, whoever else. I, I think that we are, I think we are counting out South Carolina. And again, Will Muschamp is 7-1 against Tennessee. Look, like, if, if he can win that game, if he can beat Kentucky. And those are winnable games. A lot of swing games. A lot of swing games, it, it seems like, in the East more so than, than the West for me. Yeah. I know last year South Carolina beating Georgia was the ultimate how-in-the-world-did-that-just-happen type of game. 
There's one that I have in mind. And I'm going to say some positive things about, about this team that I have potentially losing this game. And I didn't yeah. pencil this in. But it's the game that I'm like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, should I have tried to go out on a limb and call this upset? But it w- I didn't because it would have changed the landscape of how I think this is ultimately going to turn out in the division. Mizzou at Florida intrigues, oh intrigues me for this because hear me out. Hear me out. Florida's coming off of games at A&M and against uh-huh. LSU. They'll have a bye week after this game. Of course, that is right before Georgia. That Mizzou defense can absolutely frustrate Florida's offense. And if you're wondering, what in the world are you talking about? The last three years, Ryan Walters has been the defensive coordinator at Mizzou. He's still the defensive coordinator despite the fact that Barry Odom left. Eli Drinkwitz kept him on staff. Also returned defensive line coach at Mizzou. Take that for what it is. Florida hasn't even hit 24 points in the last three years against Mizzou. Just saying. I'm just saying. They are, for whatever reason, even with Dan Mullen, a bit of a kryptonite in terms of what they're able to do from a defensive they, standpoint. They've been embarrassed by Mizzou on more than one occasion. They've been embarrassed by them at home. They've been embarrassed yeah. by them on the road. And that hasn't necessarily just been a McIlwain thing. It happened with Mullen yeah. as well. And I just sort of wonder if Ryan Walters has figured out the best possible way to defend Dan Mullen. I just kind of wonder about if no. that's... No. Dan Mullen's a world beater. I've argued on this. I've argued before. There's not five coaches in the country that I would rather have on building my staff around than Dan Mullen. <laughs> I've said that before, but I just kind of wonder: is that the type of game where where it falls in the schedule, where Florida is all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, we're in a dogfight right now against a team that record-wise has no business being on the field? But right. I know, and as we've talked about before, the talent that they have at each level of that defense for Mizzou coming back with. With having a guy like Kobe Whiteside, Nick Bolton, and then Tyler Gillespie on the back end at the safety position, they are better on defense than I initially gave them credit for. And I am looking back at my number 10 ranking of their defense saying, you idiot, why'd you do that? Right. But I wonder about the timing of it, too, with Florida. A team that, like, we've heard, who was it? It was like Ja'Kai Polite who came out a couple years ago and just, like, bashed on Mizzou for saying that they didn't have... They didn't, their atmosphere wasn't intimidating to play in because their fans don't make a lot of noise or whatever. Like, Florida is going to overlook a Mizzou team in that spot, especially oh, if they yeah. get off to one of these big-time starts, especially if they're coming off of that big emotional win against LSU. And I just kind of wonder, I have that game circled as like, hmm, uh, that wouldn't stun me in the way that I think it would have initially. Yeah, um... Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I can see that. I mean, like, and again, I said this last episode. That, like, th- we could be totally off on all this stuff because there's never been a year of more uncertainty. Yeah. Like, we've spent the last, I mean, I have spent the last several months arguing on Twitter, like, with people about COVID and Stuart Mandel and, like, being like, you know what? Here's the backup secondary uh, pieces for South Carolina and Kentucky or whatever. I Yeah, you could be totally right. Like, we're going to oversee some things. I don't think that Florida loses to Mizzou. From what we've seen, the consistency standpoint from Dan Mullen over his first two years at 21-5, and five, mm-hmm. I haven't seen as much of a lapse for big games. Like, I, I would throw that out about Kirby more so than I would about Dan Mullen, um, which I think perfect segue here. Are we going to get into, like, talk about the, the, the two teams? Real quick. So before yeah. we talk about the two teams um, – and I guess this is this is kind of a segue, but I struggled with East upsets within the division just because I yeah. think Florida and Georgia are on their own tier. And I didn't even have I don't have Mizzou beating Florida. That's my like, hey, I'm kind of wondering about this. 
Are um, you hedging on it? I'm Just hedging. There, I'm not. hedging and based in, based on what happens with with some of these if some of these opt-outs happen, if there are quarantines, that's the one that I'm wondering if I can talk myself into when push comes to shove, uh, when that date comes. But the thing that I come back to, look, like Florida was 5-1 and against the East last year and was plus 116 against the division. My biggest criticism of that 2018 Florida team was that, look, they were in the fourth quarter playing in close games against way too many teams in that division, and they really didn't dominate the division as much as what the final record indicated. They didn't last year either, brother. Like, I tell you what, that Kentucky game they scored late and covered the spread, which I was pissed about. South Carolina in the rain. There's a lot of calls that, that went their way that probably shouldn't have in the, that game. Whole, yeah. it, 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 no, not just that either, but like early. I mean, that game was going down to the wire in the fourth, and that was another that I was like, this has gotten out of hand, and it shouldn't have because the, the game was a lot well. closer. Yeah, uh, yeah so, so I think I, I still think that Florida is the second-best team in this division, and it would not surprise me. Based off the stat you gave the other day, it would not surprise me if Florida is able to run the table and go undefeated in this, in this division or in this, this season. They won't, in my opinion, and I think they have two losses on that on the table there. But I think, uh, you know, they they could with, with pl- having seven games against new. Well, you said six, and I'm going to stand by seven and not even because you're including on LSU, and, and, and I'm yeah, not. Yeah, because Joe LSU. Brady was the was the reason they were different last year, and you're not going to change my mind on that. But like, but Florida having their first eight games against teams with seven of them, six or seven having new offensive coordinators. I think that says a lot, and I think that, that kind of turnover, and it's something that we really, really honed in on last year going into a season with, well, Saban and all this turnover finally caught up to him, and I think that we're seeing that more and more across college football because people are using jobs as stepping stones. People do not want to be career coordinators anymore. Just you're, not, you're not going to find Don. It, it really is. It's like you're not going to see Don <laughs> Chavis anymore. You're like Don the John Chavis going in and be like, you know what, I'll be a 30-year coordinator, company man, and just getting <laughs> done. Excuse my language. But, like, you know what? Yeah, man, hell, brother, I'm cool with driving the truck for 30 years. No, it's like I want to. I want to race. I want to go fast. I want to be the head head guy. And not everyone is built for for being the head coach. You know what I mean? Like not everyone's made to be be a head coach. And I think that we've lost sight of that. So you see so much turnover from the coordinator position, and it's really hurt. Like from from a standpoint of like finding the right fit. And we are so quick to blame it on Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts is a guy that had a different coordinator. Every single year. We talk about how bad he was in 2017. Brian Dabble was one of the worst coordinators that Saban's ever had. Jared Garantano, he's had three different coordinators in his first three years. Like, so how does this start to look when there is more consistency and stability at that position? And I think for a lot of reasons that matters. And I, and I think that Dan Mullen going up against the, like seven teams, especially with a Grantham defense, we talked about Cole Kublik, being able to be maybe have a little bit of advantage like rushing and just constantly nonstop, like rushing the passer, all that kind of stuff, I think that matters a lot. If I'm giving my division pick on this, I don't think it matters at one place, and I don't think it matters at Georgia. And, and I think that in the same way that I'm saying, same way that I'm saying that South Carolina, their offense has to be better because it was so bad last year, right? It was so bad under Brian McClendon. And having, having Mike Bobo come in there, all those things, I think, I think they have to at least improve somewhat on offense. Todd Munkin, Todd Munkin coming in at Georgia, I don't know what he's going to bring to the table. I, I know that he likes to throw the ball more than run the ball. It is eight months to the day that I said on this podcast 
that giving De'Eric King to a guy like James Coley would be like giving a virgin to a Kardashian because he would have no idea what to do with it, okay, or a Kardashian to a virgin. That's I still stand by that because of the fact that James Coley did not know what he was doing with all of those weapons in this offense. He just didn't. He didn't. And, and, and Todd Munkin, I have to think, the offense will at least look a little bit better. But if it doesn't, that defense is loaded, and I don't see anyone besides maybe Bama once beating Georgia. That's fair. That's perfectly fair. I, and I hate to say the Florida fans because I know you guys are fired up, and this could be the year, and the schedule. But dude, Mike Griffin said the other day, he made, the, he made a good point on the heels of your point. He said, Florida is the only team in this entire damn conference that doesn't have, I'm adding the cuss words, but he had, he's the only one in this entire conference that somehow doesn't have back-to-back road games. Like, like where is the uproar over that? I, like, how is that possible? I, I just, I don't get that. And I think that Florida, they are going to be a good team. They're going to be just a stable Steady as she goes, team. They are not elite like Georgia's elite. And Georgia may be the most elite team in this whole conference. There it is, right there. We'll just end the episode right there. You know, that, that, that's all I'm we just need. Saying. Doomsday. I've told you this, <laughs> but bear with me because those who are listening have not heard the scenario in which I see playing out this year and the way that I have built these crystal balls. I have Florida and Georgia both going 9-1 and one this year. I have Georgia beating Bama, but losing to Florida. And you say, how in the world can that possibly happen? Todd Grantham is still on that Florida sideline. It is never going to happen. Don't talk yourself into it. It's not going to happen. And you I realize it. Chaos. I know all I, – I mean, of course I want chaos. It's 2020. We're due some chaos. But here's hear me out on this. Georgia, the last two years in that, in that game, cocktail party, went 20 20 for 32 with five of their six touchdowns on third down. With so many different pieces moving up front for Georgia and with all the talent that Florida has returning in the front seven, I wonder about how that is going to look, especially with a new starting quarterback that Georgia has. Don't get me wrong. I think they're going to have their moments, but I think they're going to be there are going to be moments of inconsistency that are a little bit more frustrating for this Georgia offense. Florida last year also had 21 rushing yards in that game. Put a lot of pressure on Kyle Trask to make some big-time plays. And that was not an easy thing to do. And Trask actually thought did okay. But when you can't run the ball at all, you're depending on him to be extraordinary. I think that Florida offensive line that is four seniors up front who have year-plus of experience starting in the SEC are going to be better. They just have to be. Even against that UGA front, which I we, we've talked about it before, I think is absolutely loaded. I think Florida has a better chance to run the football in 2020. I just do. They would have to. It's the same they thing have we've been to. saying for like one thirteenth. Yeah, they have, that has to be improvement. Yeah. I come back to the belief of the sense of urgency that Florida is going to have in that game, knowing what's at stake, knowing that I think Todd Grantham in the back of his mind has said for the last year, I need to figure out ways to dial up pressure. If I don't (laughs) dial up pressure in this game, it could be my job because he's heard all the noise about Florida fans saying, look, if you're not going to be able to dial up pressure in this game for the third consecutive year, you're going to be gone. You're going to be donezo. Dan Mullen's going to have to say, I got to do something to get over the hump against Georgia. But but you saying Grantham is sitting there just like scouring his brain trying to figure out like I gotta figure out a way to bring pressure. That's like me being like, I gotta figure out a way to gain weight. Like what? No. He knows how to do it. Maybe he's just up against better coaching. Like I mean he like he he that dude will bring 
the house like it's a goal line blitz. In but he didn't last year. He didn't last year. That was the frustrating thing for Florida fans is that they're yeah. sitting there watching this game like, when is he going to bring pressure on third down on Jake Fromm? Yeah. When is he not going to give him a clear throwing lane for Lawrence Cager to be wide open over the middle? Right. There are things that I think you look at with this Florida team, especially with an experienced starting quarterback in Kyle Trask, especially with the weapons that they have yeah. on the outside, as long as yeah. those guys are healthy, in terms of who can actually stay on the field with right. this Georgia defense. I think the Florida offense has it by a hair, and I think this ends up being a really oh. close down to the wire game. I'm not saying that Florida offense overall is going to be better than Georgia defense, by the way. Just That's what you just record. said. I've no, no, no. Up, I, I so. have it by a hair on that afternoon in Jacksonville. Okay. That's that's what I'm saying. I think that Florida finally gets over the hump this year. So let's say that this scenario unfolds. One lost Florida wins the East. One lost Bama wins the West. One lost Georgia is not going to Atlanta. One lost Georgia is at home wondering what in the world needs to happen for Georgia to get into the playoff. Because you know what? If Florida wins that game and Florida beats Bama in the SEC championship, Georgia's like, hey, we deserve that four seed. We beat yeah. Bama. We're 9-1. and one. Why does somebody else in, a, in the Big 12 who maybe lost in a conference championship game or like a team like Notre Dame or, or maybe even UNC, why do they deserve to get into the playoff yeah. over us? We're 9-1. and one. We have arguably the best win of anybody in the country. That scenario would create the perfect doomsday, just Twitter meltdown with Florida and Georgia fans, and really the most of the SEC, because you'd even have Bama fans getting into the fray because what happens if Bama loses that game? Bama's like, well, we won our division. We deserve to make it into the playoff as well. Yeah. We, we lost to a really good Florida team. I would be fascinated. To see how it would be awesome with three Power Five conferences in action this year, not the whole, yeah. you know, f- all five Power Five conferences. I think it'd be fascinating to see that, and I, I, I see, I see a clear scenario in which that could easily what, happen. The world that the, the, what we deserve as fans, I think, or uh, we don't, but like I just we at the same time in a sick way we do, is Georgia winning a national championship. And it, and it being eerily similar to the 2017 Bama National Championship, where Georgia wins a national championship but doesn't beat their arch rival in Florida. Hmm. And then we have to hear all offseason about Florida fans saying, well, you guys didn't beat us. And then Georgia's like, well, we won a national championship. And, like, I, I think that would be oh, That'd be such a bittersweet but, but a, year for Georgia to, to beat Georgia Bama. Fans, no, they wouldn't care. They would, like, and I, I remember having this conversation last year, and, and, and like, any rational Georgia fan is 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 gonna say the same thing, okay? Like like when it's been that long, like like if Bama played all group of five schools and went twelve and zero, like they had a UCF schedule and won the national championship that way, like I wouldn't care. Oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. If Georgia like, wins like, the national championship, yeah. you're right. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. I want to win. Like yeah, I just, yeah, I want to win. Sure. But I remember, I remember talking to Georgia fans last year. It's like you know, we like. It wouldn't mean as much if we don't beat Bama. And I'm like, but would it though? Because it would. It would. It's a national championship. Like, and, and I, I've 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 said this all off season. There's been Georgia fans that have reached out and like, of course, this would be the year that we win the national championship when it wouldn't count. And I was like, no, it does. Celebrate the blank out of that. I mean, like, if you win a national championship in a year and you're at Georgia, celebrate the absolute shit out of that. And I, like, I'm sorry for being so aggressive with the language there, but I mean, like, any any team that wins, especially this year. Yeah, celebrate that. I, I love what you're saying about Florida. I, I really, like, I, I, I'm not 
low on this team at all. I'm not. I, I, I do think they're going to have two losses. I think they're going to lose to Georgia, and I think they're going to lose to either A&M or, uh, or LSU. I, I think that that is going to end up happening. They can, I can still see them getting to the SD Championship game. This is a defense we talked about with Grantham. He catches so much flack. They ranked in the top ten nationally. He catches flack because he can't beat Georgia. It's as right. simple as that. It's but simple he, as that. He, he, had, he, he ranked in the top ten nationally in – or this defense ranked in the top ten nationally in three out of four major categories last year. Yeah. I mean, it, and they lost some key pieces, sure. They, sure. But I tell you what, if we look at that team – Going into last season, when we thought Jabari Zuniga was going to be a first-round draft pick, who else in the D line? Yeah, like, but like, you don't have to. They're not looking at this team in the same way that maybe LSU is. Where it's like, oh man, how are we going to replace five, five former first-round picks? I mean, Florida doesn't have it. They have, they've got a lot of guys. It's like a next man up type mentality where they could go out there and and make a name for themselves in the same way that we we looked at a guy like Zuniga. C.J. Henderson's going to be tough to replace. Kyrie Lean could be that guy. I mean, like, like he, he could easily be that guy. I just, I have a hard time. Like, this, this game could be a, a 10 to 9, a, a 14 to 13 type game where, God, if it rains, <laughs> something stupid happens. Like, it's you know what I mean? Come on, it's going to rain. Exactly. So it's like, that game is, that, that game is always in a lot of rain. But, like, there, there could be something that happens, a, a, a snapped, a, a punt that goes through someone's hands. I don't know. Anything like that. And we've seen it in the past. That I think it, the game can come down to something like that, where neither one of these teams is going to blow the other one out. But I just have a hard time seeing that defense from Georgia be be being beaten. You know, a twenty-one to twenty game is kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, just a nail biter down to down to the wire. I have in the, my my crystal ball here. I have Malik Davis, the off-injured Florida running back, scoring a game-winning touchdown. And no, this that'll is, be a backup quarterback. No, no, no. It's not Florida, Kentucky that we're talking about here. I'm talking about Bama, Bama Georgia. But yeah, oh, Florida. gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But if that scenario were to unfold where Georgia gets over that hump early in the season against Bama, and then they end uh-huh. up losing to Florida, and then they're without, you know, they're they're without an SEC championship berth, and they're on the outside looking in. What a bittersweet feeling that's going to be, knowing that Kirby got over the Bama hump, knowing yeah. that that finally a Saban disciple finally beat the master. But knowing that Florida could potentially be having this type of year, I'd have a little bit more confidence right now in Georgia if we knew what in the world to expect from this offense. I, you got to see it. You got to see this thing unfold because I don't think there anybody that's saying that they're going to do what 2019 LSU did is just. I mean, that's an absurd thing to think Who's about. Who's saying that? Oh, you saw that some of the some of that talk in the beginning of the offseason when you're like, you got all these five star weapons here. You got Todd Munkin coming in. They're finally going to be unpredictable. I mean, I, I've heard those comparisons. Those comparisons are ludicrous. I realize that's yeah. mostly message board type stuff yeah. that, that people who actually do this for a living aren't seriously saying that. But there are just so many moving pieces on that offense in a year in which turnover seems so important and not having to deal with that and actually having continuity. I think Florida has it a little bit more in an area that seems very, very important in a game like this this year and especially up front where I think they're going to get better on that offensive line. They have to get better, yeah, and will. that's what's going to be the thing that's going to allow them to finally get over the hump against Georgia. i tell you what, too. The other part of that is people, Georgia fans especially, are very quick to get onto the whole, well, you know, um, what is it? Like, like they lost so much talent at receiver. Like, they had three receivers drafted. Last season, right? Van Jefferson, I don't even know who else. Freddie Swain, all these other people. Like, 
Yes, sure, sure. That that Is they Tyreek have. Cleveland drafted. I, I don't know. Cleveland. Either way, they they did lose a lot of talent at receiver, but this is a this is a receiving core that still has a lot of talent. And if there's anyone that can like really figure out a way, like like you name me one elite receiver at, at Mississippi State under Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen has had one thousand yard receiver in the last decade, I think. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't even know if Chad Bumpus was. It's not the offense. Him. It just hasn't no, been the offense. It, and I think that you know, Darunya Wilson was good because he was a physical mismatch. But that's a dude that ran like a four seven eight forty. I, I don't think that, like, if if we're looking for this this team to not be good and this offense to not be good because of something, it can't be the receivers. <laughs> it's just it's just not the 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 offense isn't predicated on that. And and I and I think that that that's just it's a bad bad starting point for an argument. Um, I don't know, man. I, I just, I'm picking Georgia. I'm picking Georgia to go nine and one or ten and zero, and and I'm I'm picking Georgia to get to the playoff, possibly win the SEC. I'm not ready to say if I think they're going to win the SEC yet, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm picking Georgia to win this division. If you if you had like go through the list, I saw I saw somebody on Instagram. It's like a, has a huge following. He did his picks, and he's like MVP of the year, George Pickens, division winner. Florida. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I don't know how, how that's is that going to happen? Um, but give me, you think Florida's going to win the division, obviously, uh, and then somehow win the SEC championship. I, I would bet anything in my life. That. I thought you said they were going to beat Bama. No, I said if they beat Bama. That I, I was playing out this scenario oh, okay. earlier. Okay. I have, I have so, Bama beating, beating Florida in the SEC championship. Give me your division or conference, whatever, like accolades. Like, like comeback player of the year for me is Terry Wilson. Terry Wilson would be a really, really good one. Another one to keep in mind is Larry Roundtree. And I wonder about that offense at Mizzou with how yeah. much success that Eli Drinkwitz has had with tailbacks. And you can even go back to 2017 NC State with Naeem Hines and Jalen Samuels and what he was able to do last year at Appalachian State where they had a tailback who had like 1,600 scrimmage yards. His tailbacks are always really, really good. And I'm yeah. kind of wondering if I've been a little bit too too sleepy on Larry Roundtree because – Yeah, you I have. have. Yeah, I'll tell I mean, you that. <laughs> do it 3.8 yards per carry in SEC play last year. That offensive line sure. was not good. It was no. not good. And they have a lot of turnover uh, in that area. But he's a guy that I've kind of been wondering about for comeback player of the year in the SEC. There's – I don't think Felipe Franks is, is like, is going to have enough stability to do something like that. But he's mm. one that's going to be on the minds of many, of course. A guy, if, if, it, if it works – Ryan Holinsky would probably be up for that, maybe? I yeah. don't know. You haven't said a name that I think ter- that will be better than Terry Wilson just because of what I expect him to do this year. Um, it, for whatever reason, na- like neighbor Terry Wilson, I tell you what, man, uh, neighbor Larry Roundtree has a, has a similar, like, like it, I'm getting very King of the Hill vibes of us sitting there having a beer in front of like a... a Larry a, Roundtree and Terry a, Wilson? Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean? Like, just like sitting there like, oh, Larry brought over his baked beans. I tell you what, brother. Like, yeah. don't tell his wife he's over here right now. He, he, <laughs> he told her he's going to be down at church for, for helping them paint that fence. But we were kicking back having a couple beers with Larry and Terry. Larry and Terry? <laughs> there we go. God. That would be great. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it. I'll be Uncle Jerry. But regardless, I think I think those two, <laughs> Larry and Terry, 2020, absolutely love it. I, I, think, I think the MVP of this division is going to be – it's it's going to be the quarterback of of Florida, or it's going to be the quarterback of Georgia. Probably will be. I mean, right? Or hear me out yeah, here. Is White potentially? Demir White. Well, Georgia wins. That's yeah. the other one. Demir White is he's every everything you would want in a pack. He's so big. 
He's so big. I wonder about... I still wonder about if he's going to be able to make those breakaway plays. We still have yet to see him yeah. really do that at Georgia in the way that he did at high school. Obviously, two major knee surgeries, something to do with that. Yeah. If he can have that explosiveness at the line of scrimmage, I'd be a little bit more on board with saying I'm all in on him being kind of the MVP of the division. But still think he's an elite back and he's going to run for, for a ton of yards. I know they're excited about James Cook as well in Athens. but I, I will tell you right now, my hottest take of this entire division. Okay. Georgia gives up more than 20 points one time all season Oof. In, the, in the regular season. They will give up Oof. 20 points only one time. To Florida when Florida it. gets 21. To Alabama, but yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, here's, here's a little bit of a take. My East team that I'm afraid is going to make me look really dumb. I should I should have did this for the West, too. I don't Probably know why All of them, right? Yeah, all of them, uh, obviously. <laughs> like, I mean, My predictions are, are awful. Everybody knows this. Um, actually, you know what? I take that back. Crystal ball last year, we were good. We, we took a lot of heat for that. We were good. Yeah. We were good. But that guy, the, that guy was like, dude, your opinions are trash. That guy's stupid, so that's yeah. fine. Keep your going. opinions are trash, man. Yeah. <laughs> the East team that I'm most afraid is going to make me look dumb is Mizzou. And I've hinted at this. I've hinted at this because... I, I, the more you look at the receivers with Jalen Knox coming back, Damon Hazleton is someone who, coming from Virginia Tech, all he does is catch touchdowns. They're really, really high on this Division II transfer from Angelo State, Kiki Chisholm, 6'4 kid who's going to be a really good red zone threat. Parker, the tight end, who is, is the replacement for Albert O, who has had actually a pretty good start to his career, a lot of which has been in replacement of Albert O always getting injured. But... I just kind of wonder, with all the mystery surrounding Eli Drinkowitz's offense, what's it's going to look like? What quarterback is he going to build around? I just kind of wonder, is that the team that's going to like surprise? And all of a sudden, you're looking up at the end, and you're like, how in the world did they get to six and four? How in the world did like, how did that happen? Is this one of those Mizzou years, which I, I'm I, I have them projected for two and eight, and I feel terrible about it. I really do. I really do. But yeah, I just you feel terrible. I do, and I'm sorry, and I apologize to Adam Spencer. I'll send him a text. But I just kind of wonder if Mizzou is one of those teams that can be a lot more competitive with the middle, especially the middle part. Maybe they won't beat a team like like a like a Georgia. Maybe that Florida thing is just me kind of buying into some of this hype early in the season. But I don't know. I just kind of wonder about the mystery, and if them they they come out of the gates and they just look a lot better than we thought. And I think that. The, the, the deck I, is stacked against them completely I, this offseason, but I, I don't know. Mizzou is the team that I'm like, I, I just, I, I feel like I'm not going to have a good feel on until the middle of the year. So, what is going on with your biceps today? There's pop. There's pop. That's kind of ridiculousness I, today. Um, <sighs> I, I talked to, okay, you don't have to flex both. There's a compliment. Let's move on. I, I, I talked to my best friend Jeff and my BFF Rose. I, I love Adam Spencer to death. Like, and I, I trust his insight to, Mizzou more than anything. Tom Hart, similar, <laughs> I guess. At the same time, I, I don't trust anyone as much as I trust Jeff Colby because he's the most rational person I've ever met in my life. His read on the situation, and he's very much excited about football season and all that kind of stuff. His read on the situation, he told me this a couple weeks ago, and this is one of the reasons I'm not high in Mizzou. He said, it would benefit this program to sit out a year of football more than it would to play. And I don't think that that's far-fetched because of all of the crazy turnover they have. New quarterback, new coach, new like this. <laughs> you got Bama and LSU to play. I, I just I think that it pisses me off a little bit because you guys know how much of a like I, I honestly at times feel like a Mizzou homer on here because I think they've gotten distorted of the stick from fans nonstop in this conference, and I think the SEC didn't do them any favors at all this season. 
I just have a hard time, you know, like people have said this in the past about how the SEC West is so tough. The SEC East for like kind of like the basement dwellers, and, and that's a harsh word to use, but when you look up and have to see Florida and Georgia on your schedule every year, that's tough, man. That, that, that's tough. That's tough. And those crossover games aren't any easier. So, um, yeah. My team is going to surprise everyone in South Carolina. All right, sticking to it. I think we've covered our bases. I think we've we've found some way to not make every single fan base feel like absolute crap. I think Vandy. We didn't even talk about Vandy, which is fine. Like Vandy, we love you guys. We love you. Like, but you guys just have. Ken you're Seals. here for you're here for something different. You know what I mean? Like you're you're here for baseball season and you're here to party. That's all. Like like we we love Vanderbilt because Vanderbilt is the fun uncle of this conference. Okay, like they, they are. They're left-handed. They do things a little bit differently. They probably know how to play the bagpipes or the harmonica or something stupid. Like they, they have a party trick, and that is good grades, also baseball, and then being the most fun to go to for a visit in the town. I drove through Nashville last week. Had some Hattie B's, by the way, as well. Nashville's I've great. Never had Hattie B's. It's good. It's really, really yeah. good. It's really good. Dare I say, I actually think I might like the. Um, uh, chicken Fire, the place that's in Orlando that has hot chicken, that's incredibly good. It was the one I tweeted the picture out like a couple months ago. First time I ever had hot chicken. C Wright's gonna disagree with Connor, that. Whatever. I love you to death, but I don't take your food takes seriously. I just, I'll just what? Honest. Yeah, I don't. I don't. What? Like you think? Because you think that everything in in Orlando is the best. And I tell you what, whoa, man, whoa, whoa! Best, I've never said it that. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be in Orlando. Hater, hater in the house. My goodness gracious. <laughs> best breakfast right, I ever had in Nebraska, baby. Can't oh, beat it. God. Good old Wheatfield. Somebody's going to listen to this and know what Wheatfield is. That's a Garth Brooks song. There we go. Uh, before we get to our interview with T-Bob, um, oh. I think our friends at MyBookie have, yeah. they're, they're, I think they're going to have over-unders for SEC <laughs> win totals soon, but I think they've been yeah. waiting on those, if Which I'm not mistaken. Because I, I've seen them in other places, and I kind of look around and I'm like, eh. I don't know if I'd want to be doing that right now when you don't know yeah. about opt-outs, you don't know who's going to be, you know, active for these first games. They're, they're my bookies, the approach. my bookies, being patient, they're taking this yeah. thing really seriously. I tell you what, though, uh, if don't wait to to put money in on my bookie at all. First off, use the promo code SDS. They will give you uh, at least a hundred percent of your initial deposit. Get on my bookie. Do it like well. This is coming out Friday. Um, We've got a full Saturday of football. You got to be doing it for dude, that. If you didn't jump all over the Chiefs minus fifty four plus fifty four last night, I don't even know what to tell you. Like just just jump on that immediately. So go to mybookie.com today. They've got all sorts of fun things we're betting on. And I tell you what, man, this weekend, NHL playoffs, NBA playoffs, full slate of NFL games. There is a full slate of of ACC football games being played. I cannot wait to gamble on all of it. Go to mybookie.com today. It's also September eleventh. Um, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm not gonna tell you guys the Patty Sue story this year, but we will do it another time. But if you, you know, it's, I think it's a. It's a day that in the year where we've really been more divided than we would want to be in in a lot of ways. I think it's it's a day that everyone should remember and be thankful for, whether what side of political or whatever side you're on. We could all be proud to be Americans and how we came together that day. And we need more of that. Like. You know what I mean? Like, people didn't like George Bush necessarily in 2001, but you remember the day he came out at Yankee Stadium and threw that damn first pitch? It was awesome. It was awesome. And we need more of that in this country. And and I love you guys. Go to USA. I'll we need it. more first pitches. That's what we need. We do. Not minor league game first pitches, because that's always something stupid. It's like, this, is true. this PE teacher gave someone the Heimlich last week. Anyway. 
My mom's a PE teacher who's given someone the Heimlich at a restaurant God, before. Jesus Christ, God, yeah, of course. <laughs> All right, let's go to another great American. Great to be able to talk a, a ton of different things with T. Bob Bear. He is someone who is so so smart when it comes to all things LSU, <laughs> Star Wars, Game of Thrones, whatever. In Roman references. <laughs> Roman references. That's the most amount of Roman references I think we've ever had on this podcast. Yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> one. Yeah. But here's our interview with T. Bob. We're now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first-time guest, in fact. It is former LSU offensive lineman and the host of Off the Bench on ESPN Baton Rouge, T-Bob Bear. T-Bob, it seems like the old cliche about championship hangovers is going to follow LSU this season. We'll have plenty of time to get into all that stuff. What I want to know is how long your actual post-championship hangover in January was. It was, uh, I mean, it was it, it was kind of a weird experience, right? Because after they won the Natty, uh, I had a morning show to do the next day. So oh, yeah. I was in the Superdome, and we do our show out of Baton Rouge. And uh, so, I, so I did all the postgame stuff on the field, confetti falls, see a bunch of people. It, it was, you know, it was great. It's fun celebrating. But that night, uh, being the professional that I am, uh, I abstained from any partying and I hit the road about 1am or whatever it was. I went back uh, to Baton Rouge. I slept and then I woke up and I brought a, uh, a handle of whiskey into the studio with me. And I started drinking, <laughs> I think at, uh, I started drinking at 7am at work. Um, I drank throughout the show. Uh, immediately after the show, I went and uh, I went to get a cheeseburger at this and I was Ubering everywhere, obviously. We went to get a cheeseburger yeah. afterwards where I continued to drink. Uh, I then went home where I continued to drink more, and I loaded up my pipe with plenty of pipe tobacco, and I smoked that, and I continued to drink. So I went on about a 24-hour bender. Uh, it just yeah. didn't start to like, 7 a.m. And then, uh, and look, anytime you start drinking that heavily, like, full-on liquor drinking at 7 a.m., and you're my age now, I'm 31, like, that throws you for, like, that throws you for a loop. So it, it was yeah. probably a week of me trying to get my feet back under me, but it was uh, it was it was well worth it. Your two minute open on your show, I you, so you say like you stayed sober to be able to do your show and then drink throughout the day, but your two minute open the following day is <laughs> the stuff a legend. I just rewatched it again today. I don't have any sort of LSU allegiance or anything like that, but that still gives me chills rewatching it eight months later. None of that was scripted or anything, was it? No, I want to say so. Okay, so I definitely celebrated hard. Which I'm trying to remember which one was. Is it the one where I'm yelling about the curse being broken and I'm like really intense, like spittle flying out of my mouth? Yeah, I mean, well, it's got the purple shirt in there, the purple tiger shirt that you laid to rest, I believe. Okay, yes, that is the game game shirt. I'm just trying to remember if it was after the night because I have one that went that did pretty good after the uh, after the Bama game where I got mm-hmm. a lot off my chest, oh right? And no, none of this is prescriptive. <laughs> I just like to – I just – I don't know if it's like a byproduct of growing up watching wrestling or or what it is, but when I get pumped up enough, I just immediately start, like, hitting a wrestling promo. Uh, no, so, I mean, that, that Alabama video was me just fully, fully getting those feelings off of my chest. And same thing for the national championship. I mean, a, a, a just a uh, – 
the stuff of legends that year was for LSU, 15-0, and Heisman winner, the natty. You go from being a quarterback wasteland to having the best offense of all time. Um, you beat seven top ten teams. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It was just an unreal year. I, I, it was a fever dream type of year for LSU fans. Yeah, so I mean, my, my follow-up question before you had to just like break me emotionally with the, the Bama game reminder – um, was going to be what were your what were your drink of choice the night before? But so what what was your favorite part of like I, I think not just in the celebration, but like from last season we we got to go to Baton Rouge. It was my first time ever going to Baton Rouge. An absolutely incredible experience. I think the only downside we would probably agree on this, Connor, is that when I tried to start the We Want Bama chant at the end of the Auburn game and nobody <laughs> wanted to join in, um, it was just an incredible experience. What was your favorite part of the entire year? Uh, so my drink of choice, like I'm a, I'm, I'm a brown liquor guy. It doesn't matter what kind of like bourbon, like whiskey. I love single malt scotch, I like blended scotch. So any of it, dude, I don't, I don't, I don't care. I just like brown liquor. Um, in terms of my favorite part of last year, uh, it was the Bama game. And it's funny cause yeah, you know, Tiger stadium was incredible for Florida. Uh, it was spectacular for Auburn. Uh, and that Auburn game was really the closest game of the year in a lot of ways. And it was, you know, it, it was exciting, but, but so I, the, the Bama game just wraps up. It, it just had so many narrative strands in it. Right. For me personally, right. my playing career ended in that 2012 national championship where, you know, we beat Bama regular season, we get blown out in the national championship. Um, you combine so so I have a lot of personal stake in that game because that's obviously yeah. a terrible way to end your career. And then ever since that moment, the team had never been Alabama again. Uh, for LSU fans, that game represented a crossroads. Where back in 2011, LSU and Alabama were at very similar spots. And after that blowout in the natty, you saw one team continue to ascend and you saw one team stall out and fall off. Um, it, it hadn't felt like much of a rivalry anymore. You had lost 29 nothing or whatever it was in Tiger Stadium the year before. Uh, obviously, whoever won that game was going to put themselves in the driver's seat to win the West, to win the, to be in line for a playoff spot, for a national championship, for all of these things. So mentally, like not only were there actual huge championship stakes in the game, but mentally there were the, – the, the, it, it was a psychological win for LSU mm-hmm. unlike any other, right, because – it had starting to feel like it had, I had always used the, I love like Roman analogies, right? And I had started to feel a bit like the Gauls or any of those barbarians that the Romans would conquer where, you know, at first you're chafing against them, right? And you're, and you're fighting back and you're, you're, you're rebelling and you're trying not to pay taxes, but at a certain point you get smited <laughs> down so much. You, you know, you just feel like you're ground into the ground and you just start to accept the yoke of Roman oppression. And you pay your taxes, I, you know, and you know you grumble and you you talk trash about Emperor Saban, but at the end of the day, uh, you you know you pay him tribute. So to have that end uh, with the Swamp King's rise, for him to defeat the Crimson Emperor like he did, it was just it was incredible. I mean, and it was an away game, which is also kind of fascinating yeah. because I watched it. I did my pregame show, and then I went back to my neighborhood and I watched it at my neighbors. And when I tell you the community celebration was just it was it was unlike anything i've ever seen i mean dancing hugging laughing the entire game highs lows 
super high one second, super stressed the next. When the game ended throughout the – just in the air, in, it, just outside, you'd hear car horns honking, whooping, hollering. Uh, we were taking jello shots after every turnover or every score. Like, it was just <laughs> – it, 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 it was, to me, it, it, that day encapsulated why college football is so unique and so fantastic because it was just a classic southern slice of college football life where, like, all the guys are outside and they're watching the TV on the game. A lot of the girls are inside and they're watching as well, but they're cooking, like, jambalaya and gumbo. Uh, the kids are running around. Everybody's got kids now. They're all running around everywhere. The boys are, like, playing football at first. And then in the fourth quarter, they start to get into it. They're watching the game with the dads, and then the moms come up, and the whole family's watching outside. Everybody, including the kids, is chanting Joey butt cheeks. It was just like, I mean, it was just, it was, it was an unreal day, dude. It was, it was one of my favorite football days ever. Definitely my favorite football day in which I have not been an active member of a game. It was, um, it was a special memory that I'll just take with me forever. Bob, take us back to your upbringing because you grew up in this this football family, and when you have a dad who's a starting quarterback in the NFL, I mean, you're living a, a different kind of life. What was it like going to school on Monday mornings after your dad starts? It was um, – so, you know, it, it, it's kind of interesting, man, because I don't have a – I don't have a ton of memories of, like, like, I, okay, so I was seven years old when my dad retired, right? So <clears throat> I have memories, but, like, I don't remember what it was like being at school when he was the starting quarterback. But I do remember little things like as, you know, near the end of his career, my memories kick in. I remember him really hurting that next day and kind of spending a majority of time in bed and that recovery time getting longer and longer. Uh, my most fond memories – would be of just being in that locker room as a little kid and like seeing like Deion Sanders and all these other guys. But but then that's the other part about it is when you're that young and you've grown up in it, you take it so for granted that it's hard to maintain perspective. Like my favorite parts of going to games wasn't watching the game. I would immediately leave and go to like this daycare kids area where all the parents drop off their kids and then all the kids just run around and play or whatever and, and you don't even watch the game, but I love that because I got to see my friends. It was super fun, blah, blah, blah. Like, the thing that I remember most about the locker room, while I remember Dion and I remember the guys and the shoes and everything else, the thing I remember most is they had a, a, a Gatorade machine, a vending machine that yeah. would give you Gatorade in cans, uh, but, but it was free. The wow. You could just keep hitting the Gatorades would keep coming, and, like, that blew my like mind. Check. more than Yeah, that blew my mind more than, like, primetime handing out cleats to the side of me. So <laughs> it's, it, it's on, man. It's, it's, it's a spoiled upbringing and it's weird because, you know, I got two older sisters and they have a lot more of those memories for me. It was just, um, I kind of knew nothing else. So what stood out in my mind, isn't necessarily what you would think would stand out. So I know you've, you've talked about this before, about you know, you grow up, sort of a little bit in Louisiana, but also then, you know, you spend a lot of your childhood in the Atlanta area because, you know, your dad and the, and the move that he made to go to the Falcons. How early on, though, did you know that, all right, I, I'm going to LSU and there's really nothing that's going to change my mind? I mean, I was always uh, – I always had LSU 1, UGA 2 on my list um, because you're right. I mean, I moved from Louisiana when I was four, and then I was in Atlanta until I was 18. 
and it was at GAC from like second grade on. Um, <laughs> so I have, you know, I have, I, I, I considered Atlanta. I, I still tell people that I'm from Atlanta like that, that, so, so that is my home as well. Now, given that I've lived basically the entirety of my adult life in Louisiana, that's where I claim I live now. But a lot of times I'll use the old tagline, born in Louisiana, raised in Atlanta. So I have a lot of love for Georgia uh, and for UGA. But the thing is, my grandpa um, was a diehard LSU fan. Uh, he went to LSU back in the 50s with Billy Cannon when they won the Natty. Um, he was at every LSU game, home game. For, you know, He's one of those guys that went for like decades and decades. Some of my fondest memories growing up are going – to watch the SEC championship games with him because they would be in Atlanta so I could go. Or when LSU would play Arkansas at home on Thanksgiving, we'd be in town so I could go. Um, so he raised me diehard in purple and gold, even though I grew up in Georgia. And so uh, they just had a huge inside track uh, to, to where I wanted to go. And, and look, I, I think Athens is the greatest college town in the SEC. Yes, um, and it, it's fantastic. And I love Georgia, but there was realistically nowhere else that I was ever going to go other than LSU because of my grandpa, because of how I grew up, and because I just always wanted to – I always just wanted to put on that uniform, and uh, I was lucky enough to get to do so. Um, I still can't believe that we – like, you went to school off the same road that I lived off of in Lilburn. Lilburn, <laughs> city of champions. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if you see GAC nowadays. I don't have a ton of GAC pride. But I don't know if you see it nowadays, but that place is blowing up, dude. They built like a sure. multi-million-dollar monolith, and it serves no functional purpose except to praise God. <laughs> it's like literally like a Tower of Babel situation. I'm like, y'all are losing sight of your own lessons. I tell you what, man. I just I, I know our audience being like SEC fans. Um, they're gonna love all of these very, very relatable biblical and Roman <laughs> references that you've made during this. This has been, this has been fantastic. Okay, so so my question is, um, and and I, at this point, honestly, I'll talk about anything that's not the 2019 Bama LSU game, but that 2011 team. We I did this early in the season. We talked to our buddy Chris Dory and, and we talking about like the best teams that never won a championship. He was very adamant about 95 Florida. And there's a lot to hate yep. that. But when you really look at this team, the 2011 LSU team, and I'm not trying to bring up, you know, old wounds or anything like that, but beating eight ranked teams by an average of 24 points per game, what made that team so special? And what is your favorite memory from that season? It was uh, – so what made us special was, first off, just the baseline talent, right? I mean, you just look at right. last year LSU, you look at 2011 LSU, 2011 Bama, and all these other Bama teams, right? And there's just NFL talent everywhere. So that's where you got to start, right? Because uh, ultimately, and this is something you see with Alabama a lot, and uh, any of these other major schools like a Clemson or anybody else that's always at the top of recruiting, is college football is different from the NFL in that on any given day when El when Alabama lines up, they are just flat out going to be more talented than their opponent. And that offers you a lot of advantages. Uh, for us that year, that meant that offensively, we didn't have to be super flashy. We had such a nice talent gap that we could lean on people, lean on people, lean on people, and eventually they would crumble and break, and it would end up in a rout. Um, now, so you have this great base of NFL talent to work with, but we've seen a lot of LSU teams that have had NFL talent that haven't gone on 
to do nice things. So how does that then get elevated to the next level? I think you have to have a transcendent player. And for us, it wasn't the quarterback. It wasn't Joe Burrow. It was Tyron Matthew. Uh, I have never shared a locker room with someone like Tyron Matthew. He's the best football player, the best leader that I've ever shared a locker room with. Even when he got kicked out for weed and everything, so what? So the guy liked to smoke a little weed back in the day. And look what he's done afterwards. He's done an incredible job of, like, you know, altering, you know, like, whatever, just just, just kicking that and, and being the utmost professional. But I don't give a damn if he smokes every day. That was the best football player and leader I've ever shared a locker room with. And I look, I, I think that translated. I've, I've heard tell of a tale from uh, some Alabama sources that I trust that before that national championship that Saban hired a sports psychologist to study our team. And that what the guy came back with is that Tyron Matthew was the engine uh, and that yeah. their game plan was, look, cut off the head of the snake and let the body follow. And if you look at how they approached Tyron that game, they weren't going to kick to him. When they attacked him, it was only with taller receivers against the sideline. They weren't going to make him make that play. They got everything going. And it felt like time. I mean, there's a reason why he went to New York time and time again that year. When things were stalled or when things needed a jump start, he was that jump start. And then the talent took over. And look, we have like a hell of a running back room. You know, all those guys are on the playing league, a hell of a, of an O-line group, uh, but ultimately, I think it was just having a ton of talent and then that transcendent player, which pushes you into that, that next stratosphere. I saw a quote about your famous lucky snap in the 2010 Tennessee game. For those who don't remember, uh, LSU was down 14 to 10 at Tennessee on the two-yard line. It's a frenzy with the clock winding down. Nobody has any idea where they're supposed to be on both sides. And the clock hits two seconds. Jordan Jefferson isn't ready, but you just snap it to him anyways. It goes past him and a fumble. It looks like a fumble is going to end the game, but Tennessee had too many men on the field when you snap it. They had 13 men on the field. LSU gets another play, scores, wins, crazy atmosphere. You said after the game you were sitting in your shower drinking a beer and you started laughing maniacally. Yeah. So my yeah. question isn't about any of that. It's shower beers. Tell me why they're worth it. Well, I mean, I'm 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 not a regular shower beer guy because uh generally it's you know they're they're not bad. They're not bad, but the premier shower beer when I normally engage in them is after rigorous physical activity. Uh nowadays maybe that's like an especially hard workout for a day. Or if I work out and then I'm going to a night where I know I'm going to go out to eat and I'm going to go out and do some drinking, you know, you kind of can start your pregame in the shower. That's also an option. Uh, but when you look at, right, okay, I, I like drinking. I like doing other things. I, I like mind-altering things. Uh, endorphins alter your mind, okay? So when you play a football game and you have this four-hour physical battle, already your body is flooded with endorphins because you put the work in. Then you combine the mental endorphins of that insane, I mean, I've never felt an emotional swing like that, feeling like you blew your season against the Tennessee team to then five minutes later, all of a sudden you've won and everything's good again and, like, life is good again. And you do this all in front of a stadium of 100,000. I had 18 people at that game. I've never had that many people come, like friends and family. Uh, we had a bunch of Australians because my sister was dating an Australian at the time. They'd never been to a college football game. Like, there was so much on the line. And there is every week. That's why college football is so fantastic. Every week as a player, you feel like your season's on the line. Uh, 
But there was so much on the line to win that game in the manner that we did where, uh, you know, not not fully accurately, which we can get into, I was painted as this awesome hero, which I love, and I will absolutely accept <laughs> as an O-lineman. But, but to all of these factors to come together and then to be back in my dorm room in that shower and drinking a beer, my God, when I tell you that was one of the best-tasting beers I have ever had <laughs> in my entire life, it was unreal. And I think it was like a, like a Coors Light or something. Nothing special, uh, but, but but a lot of times the setting, the setting can make the beer right, and that's not a shot of course. All those all those domestic light beers are all it's it's piss water, but it is what it is. It's there to serve a function. It's cool. I get it, and I still engage in it. Uh, but but yeah, that particular beer will stay with me my entire life as a top five beer. So after a workout, you're in the shower, get a beer in you. Uh, and, and yeah, you're probably set yourself up for a fun night. <laughs> that was better than I ever could have imagined. That was great. Um, we've, we've had Hester on a bunch. We, we love him. And I'm pretty sure we ask him this at least twice a year, whether it's on air or off air. I don't really know at this point, but your favorite less mile story is what? Hmm. Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. <laughs> I mean, Ooh, how is cursing allowed here? I can't. I mean, I don't know. I guess you've already done it. Let's do this. Is, are we explicit? Okay. Um, right. I'm going to give you. All, I'm going to give you all a real, not safe for work one. Uh, it's just the first one that popped into my head. Um, I remember one time we were doing a Friday walkthrough, and these are pretty serious. But I was a senior at the time, lead or whatever. So you know, I'm, I'm pretty cocky in my setting on the team, and. Uh, Coach Miles is talking about like how we need like twelve inch splits and like he's a he's a big micromanager, right? I think it's actually his greatest um weakness when it comes to being a head coach. He doesn't know how to delegate. And so like, you know, this is kinda of like some base level stuff that we're going over. And he's like, you know, what about a twelve inch split? And I don't know why he said this still to this day, uh, because it's not true, but then I busted out with, Oh, so about the size of my and I'll never forget, dude, everybody, everybody just froze. Everybody kind of looked at me, and I'll, I'll never forget Miles. I, his back was to me, and I could see his back just tense up. And then he hit this, like, slow look over the shoulder, and he had this look in his eye like, are you fucking kidding me? He's like, do me a favor. Shut the f*** up. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, and then I did, and I shut up, and I uh, did whatever he told me to do for the rest of the day. But yeah, that was just my brain just immediately betraying me. Yeah, that happens. I feel like that, like not not with you specifically, but yes, that is that is good. That is really good. Gracious, I we might have to let the bleep button slide on that one, man. That was that's too good. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Yeah. Uh, real quick, one time I had a I had a coach. Sorry, Connor. I, I had a coach who was from Philly, and I learned all of the bad words that I I never knew when I started playing for him. And I remember one time he called me a jit bag, and I was like, "What is that?" And it was like the, the same situation, but he was the one like ripping on me, and the whole practice just stopped. And it was like we had somebody to run to a phone and Google search 
what it meant. And it was it was an unbelievable experience. But yeah, it, it just that that, that just kind of sounds racist. Like whatever that word is, just sounds just sounds it bad. Condom. It was bad. It was really bad. <laughs> but, yeah, that is. Uh, I, I'm luckily my brain didn't tell me in that situation. But that God, that's a good story. Yeah, I mean, okay. my O line coach Greg Sadrava, who's now the O line coach up at Ohio State. I mean, he could string together f bombs like. Like nobody's business. I want to say we 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 measured him. We counted them up on my little like pitch yes. counter thing uh, over like a five minute period, and it was some like seventy or eighty f bombs. So he was essentially coming out to one f bomb per six seconds. Uh, it was fantastic. it was it was it was yeah it was it was. He also used to say milk toast all the time, or he'd say you're more <laughs> worthless than what do you say? Uh, he'd say milk you're more toast. worthless than goose <laughs> on a pump handle. Which I'm like, come on, dude. We don't know what that means. I've never pumped water. You're gonna have to explain that. <laughs> so, T. Bob, you know, I imagine this as a former less guy. This had to be a little bit different for you when you know 2015 happened, and then he gets to keep his job, and then 2016 they go through the change with Kosho. How long did it take for someone like you to open up? to the idea of Coach O, like, was there a moment after the move, after the move happened when you realized that this was all going to work? Well, no, I actually, I actually stumped for O to get the job. Um, okay. Now, I don't know how to separate my personal biases from this, this because uh, Coach O was, uh, he grew up with my dad in Cutoff, Louisiana. They played high school football together. They were roommates in college. Um, so they've always been, they've always been boys. And so I, I was not an unbiased source. Uh, now I did try to form objective arguments as to why he was the right man for the job. And, and I'm not doing this in any sort of victory lap because you're wrong just as much as you are right. Like it's all just a giant crapshoot. You just got to try to be entertaining. But, uh, I, I, I did say that the idea behind, first off, I, I think that O's record in the interim spots really gave you a lot of juice yeah. to think that he could get it done because he had proven with to, in my mind at least with the six and two at USC and the six and two at LSU because by design you should never be that good if you're taking over as an right. interim coach right like by design things are so broken that you fired a coach midseason you should not go six and two in those games and so to me that told me that he had learned a lot of the lessons from his failures at Ole Miss. And the main part about those lessons centered around the very thing that Miles struggled at, which was delegation, which was empowering the people under you to make decisions, right? Uh, le leadership type stuff. And so when I looked at LSU at that time, I saw a program that still had a ton of talent and still had a lot of good in the bones. And really what they mainly needed was a CEO change. And that is exactly what took place. And the majority of the staff stayed on the majority of, you know, with obviously some like offensive changes made here or there trying to figure that out. The majority of the people that, and this is rare for coaching changes, right? The majority of the training staff, majority of the weight room, majority of the support staff, like, uh, you know, all your people in the football ops building, everybody stayed on. So really it was a change at the top, but what that did is you changed the overall vision and leadership. You got out of the kind of stubborn miles air where it was, we're going to run the ball no matter what, we're going to do things my way no matter what. And you started to advance into a new era where I was like, look, I know recruiting, I know defensive line play, 
I'm going to hire really good people at every other spot, and I'm going to empower them to coach those spots. And if it's not working, I'm going to make the call to change it. I mean, obviously, they thought they were going to get Lane Kiffin. Uh, that ends up getting, you know, shut down. And then they go, well, we need a big name. You get Matt Canada. Now, you didn't do your due diligence there, and it ended up being a disaster. Him and O didn't get along. The offense was good, not that much better. But instead of falling into – and this is a key moment to highlight because I think it shows why O's been so successful this time around. Instead of falling into something like the sunken cost fallacy where, like, you're already like, okay, look, man, we put so much into Canada. We said we're going to go get the top guy. Uh, we, we just got to ride with him. Instead of riding with him, he made the tough call to say, no, I'm going to switch to Steve Ensminger, who at that point, uh, nobody, you know, th- that was the ultimate move that nobody wanted to hire. That's who people were worried about him hiring in the first place. So for him to make that move and be like, I got it wrong, we're going to try to get it right. And then even Ensminger in year one, look, he had a lot of pauses, but he didn't understand the spread. He had to be taught the modern spread. So then you go and you find this cat, Joe Brady, out of the Saints, and you add him to the mix. Uh, but, but ultimately, it all comes down to him hiring, delegating to those hires, and then being objective with those hires about if they're actually doing the job or not. And if you're doing those things, it doesn't matter who the people are that are being hired and fired. It's why Saban can turn over his staffs year in year out to be so good, also because he just recruits really well, which is everything. But ultimately, like with that, those leadership techniques, you ensure that you can sustain success through regime change. You you ensure that you can sustain success when when you do have that turnover. And 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 I think that I think that's why O has been so successful uh, this time around. As for this year's LSU team, I'm sure you've had a lot to do. You've you've done like a lot of the the calming down of people who are saying, oh, they lost too much talent. They're going to go back to, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a rough year. They're not going to be able to compete with the SEC's elite. What, what are your expectations of this year's team with this all-SEC schedule? Is there a record prediction that you have in mind? So I've, I've been around eight and two. Um, and the reason being is that even with all the departures, LSU is still supremely talented. Uh, they are still really damn good. Now, obviously, so much of it comes down to that quarterback play and how can Miles Grinnan follow Joe Burrow. But uh, but honestly, my expectations took a big hit with the recent departures. Like, if there was a straw that broke the camel's back in terms of making me worried, um, it was when Jamar Chase and Tyler Shelvin left. I mean, that's probably the, your best offensive and defensive NFL prospects, at least draft eligible. Obviously, Stingley's going to be a top-five guy when he comes out. But losing Chase especially, I think, really hurts. Because first off, uh, nothing helps a new quarterback more than – like, like Miles Brennan could have lined up, and if he saw Jamar Chase one-on-one, he didn't have to think about anything else past that. If he had the read that Jamar Chase was one-on-one, that's immediately where he could go with the ball every time. He doesn't have that now. And so while Chase's exit opens up opportunities for, you know, for statistics for guys like Terrace Marshall and Racy McMath and, I mean, this freshman Eric Gilbert's going to be unreal at tight end. So they can all get more stats now, but getting those stats is going to be a tougher road because you no longer have Jamar Chase demanding just a exorbitant amount of defensive focus. Now that focus that would have been spent on Chase could be spent on Eric Gilbert or Terrace Marshall, or one of these running backs. So I think the knock-on effect of Chase is pretty huge. 
but it didn't change my it, it changed my ceiling for LSU, not its base, right? When I look at LSU's schedule, I see six for sure wins, and I see four question games, and that's Florida, Alabama, uh, Auburn, and A and M. How you do in those four games will determine how your season goes. Before, I thought eight and two was likely maybe flirting with nine and one. Uh, winning three out of those four. Now, after the departure, I'm more seven and three likely flirting with eight and two. So I have knocked off kind of one win off my win prediction ever since uh, Shelvin and Chase left. All right. I'm over all the football questions. Um, <laughs> and and I, you know what? Honestly, have been for quite some time. Uh, so l- let's just get to the fun stuff. Keep up. I want you to take this in the best way possible. You seem like a pretty big weirdo, and, and I feel like that's that's how I am. And and I, I had this conversation, just a little peel behind the onion. I had this conversation with our producer Will Ogburn, who's a huge LSU fan and a huge fan of yours. And I was sitting there talking to myself, getting my morning coffee like I usually do. I was like, you know, I feel like I feel like Peabody probably talks to himself. Probably does it in an accent. So we're gonna we're gonna get into some of the nitty gritty and the fun stuff here. Um, and we'll do two minute drill and, and some other questions as well. Are you, are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Do you do you want me to do an accent? Is that is that is that See, where I this? Feel, I feel like you do an accent. I feel like like what what is your favorite go to accent when you're just hanging out and talking to yourself? Which I assume you do. Well, I suppose I do tend to do some sort of bastardized English accent. I like English accents of all sorts. Uh, sometimes you get a little more cockney with it. Uh, you, you what, mate? What's that you said to me? And maybe sometimes you go a bit, uh, a bit more proper. As in, uh, would you like to have some tea with me? You know, uh, I think it's an excellent podcast you boys put on. I enjoy it quite a bit. So uh, thank you so much for Love having it. me. Okay, so here's the deal. I've never seen The Matrix, and another thing that I've never seen, mm. and, and I've tried to, man. I've tried to. Star Wars. And I just I can't get into it. Same. Um, okay. Tell me, tell me which one, and don't say the original ones. These are the ones I've tried. But like, if there's one that will like get me hooked into Star Wars, which installment or, or episode or saga or whatever of the series should be? Well, um, look, if you can lead a horse to water, right? But you can't make them have good opinions. Uh, and it sounds like you both have uh, terrible opinions. And so for that, I don't like, I, I don't even know how to answer that because also I'm not a sociopath and I would never tell you to start a series, not at the beginning. Um, That's also fair, so, yeah. no, I mean, look, I am a, I am a huge fan of uh, or, origin stories. That's why I love the original Harry Potter. I love the first Star Wars uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. So, yeah, I mean, I love A New Hope from 78. Uh, but, but I mean, I, yeah, yeah, that's all. Yeah, I, I don't know where else you could possibly start. And, and you know what? It's not for you, though, for real. You know, it's, it's not for everybody. Like, I hate golf. Uh, I want nothing to do with it. So, I get it. Okay, that's fair. Your your brain is a thick candy shell. Whatever. Um, okay. <laughs> Seamless transition here. And this is, this is I don't care how this sounds, and I feel like I've said this on this podcast that we've had on there. And, I, and at the time, I may have even meant it, but none more or, than, I've, than I mean this. And, and feeling that we should be best friends because of this exact moment in time. I've been doing a Louis Armstrong impression for roughly a decade, whether it be for stand-up. I was fortunate to be able to do, do it last week on ESPN for a career baseball thing. 
Sick breath. Last year at Media Days, I walked into this smoke-filled debauchery emporium, and you were perched on a stool singing <laughs> Louis Armstrong. And we're going to get to that in a second, but give me your top three to five Louis Armstrong. I'm sorry, your top three to five karaoke songs. Okay, so here's the deal, is that you don't even realize how momentous that thing was for me because that was the first time in my life I've ever finally had the balls to do karaoke. It's been, it's been one of my premier fears, despite, you know, uh, whatever, like playing in front of a bunch of people, being on the radio every day, hell I've sung on air before. Right. But like something about live singing in a karaoke setting has always terrified me. And uh, that night, Shout out to Barrett Salee for really, I think, applying the social peer pressure that I needed yeah. to get me there. Also, shout out to my guy, Jimmy Ott, who I drank like a million margaritas with that day. <laughs> uh, but 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 I was in a right place. Uh, you know, I was finally in the right place to go for it. And I had a kid recently and I got real into our singing her uh you know songs right and for whatever yeah. reason a bunch of men up being some louis stuff and then so i was like okay you practice this it's kind of a joke <laughs> voice that you're okay at like it's not too hard to hit like i think you can do this thing and and yes when i tell you that was one of the greatest feelings i've ever had in my life even though i think there were like 15 people there um <laughs> it 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 just i mean it, it it was incredible and then later that night i think i got up there and helped somebody help rap uh we're on a boat or something. I don't know. It was like the seal was yeah. broken. So I don't have a top three. I have a top one karaoke song. <laughs> and it's uh, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. I, mm. I got to tell you, the level of jealousy that was just, just pouring out of my, my <laughs> mind at that moment. Because I was like, I had, I had done it on stage. And I was like, y'all are going to help me really that Louis Armstrong is a good singer. And, and, and then I was like, and I, I'd never done karaoke up until that point either. And I, and I didn't do it that night, but I was, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, if there's anything I could do that's like off the wall, kind of <laughs> it's Louis Armstrong. And then I walk in and effing T-Bob Bear is sitting there singing. I was like, you mother, unbelievable. Dude, unbelievable. I'm, 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 the, I'm, I'm the Toki Louis Armstrong karaoke guy. You can't have two Louis Armstrong impressions this at is, the party. This is not true. allowed. Yeah, there's you're right. One. <laughs> I'm fair. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have a Louis Armstrong sing off at the end of this, but but let's get into two minute drill. It is it's my favorite game, but I think it's right up your alley. It, it is just a a rapid fire question uh, game where you just give me the first thing that pops in your mind, and we'll add up the points in the end. And, and it, it's purely based off of personality, which I, I don't know if anyone told you this right now. You are severely lacking in, so like you should be fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so are you are you ready to play? Yes. Am I doing like one word answers? There's a whole section that I added just for you in that one, but no, the, the rest of them can be actual answers. It's a small little one. Okay, okay, but, but just short well. yeah. from the top of my mind. All right, cool. Let's do it. Yes, yeah. Like just just so you know, this is a ten question game. I've got sixteen in here just because you're 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 a special boy. So here we go. All right, let's do it. The first question. I feel special. <laughs> first question. Favorite casino game. Uh, craps. God, I love you. Okay, second question. Favorite Twitter follow. Bunky Perkins. That's good. That, that plays. That's a top five for me. Celebrity Hot Tub was the correct answer. Or Karen Howell. Third third question. Oh, Karen Howell's great. Shout out Karen Howell. She's fantastic. Oh, that's Go easy. Number one. 
Yeah, yeah, that's easy. Number one, no pickles with Chick-fil-A sauce. Uh, water, water in the cup. Okay. I did not see eye on that. You're healthier than I am. Um, you know, you can go either either route on this one. It used to be hottest Disney princess, and then the, you know, the, the boss man didn't really appreciate that as much. So it says favorite Disney princess. You can give us both or either. No, look, um, I, I kind of get, you know, I, I'm a dad now. I got the daughter. It's a hot thing. I'm like, I, this is a little weird now. But 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 I will, yeah. for favorite, I got a lot of opinions because I've watched so much <laughs> damn Disney Plus during this pandemic that I don't know. I can't see where one dress ends and the other begins. Uh, okay, so my favorite Disney princess is uh, – I'm going to go with Moana. It's been the summer of Moana. She's excellent. Um, She's a take charge kind of gal. If we're talking about most powerful Disney princess, I think that's probably Elsa. I mean, the the, the power levels displayed in Frozen 2 are nearing. I mean, we're into true superhero type of comic book realm stuff when you look at what Elsa pulls off in, in Frozen 2. That's good. That's true. Great answer. Very true. Um, okay. You know what I like about that answer is that I felt like you could have kept going. And and we don't need you today, but next time we have you on, there will be a whole section of Disney. Uh, next question. Got a lot more. from Atlanta, so don't screw this up. Favorite Outcast song? Um, I used to listen to Speaker Box all the time. Uh, the one about you, you think you're, uh, you're, you know, your roses really smell like poo, poo, poo. That is not great. Um, Karaoke. Okay. That was not okay, but see, that's that's one of those things. That's one of those things, though, where that song, that that album, just kept. It was so big, it just kept putting more hits out. Like I remember listening to that song and thinking, "Oh, this is hilarious. This is great." And then it got popular, and then I felt like a, you know, and then it's like, "Oh, well, now it's not like a deep cut anymore." But but that is the song point. that's still sticks out to my head uh, more than anything. Okay. Um, this is from our producer, Will Ogburn. And I, I'm going to have to clarify this because the way he said it, in the same way that you responded earlier about um, the jet bag reference, uh, this sounded kind of racist. He said, if you could be any fantasy race, what would you be? And he means, uh, for example, or No, or no, no. I get, I, get, I, get, I, get, okay. I get what he means. Uh, fantasy, uh, when it comes to fantasy – Applying our racial tensions to a fantasy world is an exercise in having to do some really uncomfortable questions and answering just because it's it's it, whatever because you're talking about different species essentially now right uh, in, in terms of fantasy you got your orcs you got your dwarves you got your halflings you got giants whatever trolls whatever you want to be the obvious answer there is dwarves um, they have sick beards. They love to eat, they love to drink, and they like to, like, fight and stuff. The one thing I don't like about dwarves is that they like to live in caves, but ultimately yeah. I don't leave my house, and I'm happiest playing video games all the time, which is kind of like a cave-like setting anyway. So, yeah, True. dwarves have always spoken to me on, like, a DNA level. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to like that, because then I, I was like, I brought that, that question up to him. He's like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, don't say that, because the answer is obviously orcs over dwarves. But I also could be wrong because I was I was half listening and driving a car. All right, next question. Here we go. We are getting into our one-word answers. There's three of them in a row. Describe Game of Thrones season seven in one word. Disappointing. There. God, I want to expound on. I want to expound on it so bad. Superman. Okay, that's good. Uh, dude, if you if, real quick, we can touch on Game of Thrones because my fiance made me watch all of them leading up to that, up to season seven, to get caught up before they started, and then. 
season seven happened, and it was it was the worst disappointment ever. It, it was it was awful. So to me, where it gets so disappointing to me is that I was actually down for season seven until the final episode. Like Ooh. I was still buying it. Like I had things that I was upset with, or whatever. Like you know, things that I just didn't think were well executed. But I still right. liked it overall, and I still thought they could have done some things in that final episode that definitely could have been, uh, you know, whatever that I would have enjoyed more. But uh, but yeah, man. So I mean, to me, that was I've never experienced anything like that, where I've gotten that close to the finish line, and then it just did not land with me at all. I mean, that last episode was just a random grab bag of decision making. And none of those characters, you know, resembled any of the characters or their decisions that we had come to know over like 10 years or whatever it was. That was a big bummer. Also, Rise of Skywalker was a big bummer, but that's another story. Yeah, that's a totally different story that we're not going to have. No offense (laughs) to you. Um, So, okay, last one of the one word thing. Describe Coach O in one word. Intense. Okay, I like that. Um, All right, let's wrap it up here with these final seven. Go to road trip snacks. Uh, like a peanut butter crackers. Good answer. Okay. Um, this is, I'll, I'm not going to project this on you, but I feel like it's still your fault. I bet on the pills several times during the restart. Tell me the best way for me to make my money back. Um, let me think. Don't bet on the pills. That's that's yeah. the best way. Avoid ever okay. giving any piece of your wallet or heart to the New Orleans Pelicans because the true Pelican fan experience is learning that all you live for is disappointment. Oh, I'm from Atlanta, so that really that that tugs on my heartstrings. So that's good. Yeah, um, I mean, well, no, okay. I mean, obviously Atlanta's the ultimate example. Falcons, Georgia. I mean, Hawks, you know, I loved going to Hawks in my entire life. Grow up, they would make playoffs every year. Now they have Braves, exactly. So, yeah, that, that's the true, hey, but how about the uh, the, the, the the soccer team? Let's go. United, what are yeah, we're they? Terrible this year. We're, we're absolutely – we won last year, won the whole damn thing, and now we are we are just, as you described, Bud Light, just piss water. It is, it is terrible to watch. <laughs> it's, fine. it's fine. I'm happy. It's fine. Hey, okay. dude, it. dude, the games looked fire, though. 73,000 in there looked pretty incredible. I will say that. Bro, I'll tell you right now, if you have you have a giant person waving a flag, like in, in <laughs> fandom that just says, bless your heart, that's peach colored, it is incredible. It, the games are incredible. Okay, next question. Bucket list <laughs> concert. Um... John Williams, seeing John Williams live, composing. Okay. okay. Wow, God, you're deep. Um, best SEC football stadium not named Death Valley. Well, John Williams, though, dude, that's like Star Wars, Harry Potter, Jaws, Indiana mm-hmm. Jones. That's all your favorite oh. movies that have ever been made. Yeah. This is oh, not like the okay. composer, yeah, composer. This is like the, the 80s soundtrack brought to life. Now Sorry, what was sense. the last yeah. question? Um, what is the best SEC football stadium not named Death Valley? The Swamp, definitely. Okay. You had just one chance to say one nice thing about Bama and you couldn't do it. It's fine. Um, okay, go to <laughs> No, look, Brian, look Brian, did, Brian, Denny, Brian Denny's fine. Brian, and Brian Denny was significantly louder when it went over 100,000. But the Swamp architecturally is just built, like, straight up, and they're on top of you. 
and Florida right people are you. so mean and dirty. It's just disgusting <laughs> people. Uh, and and so yeah, it's so uh, I would say the swamp. Okay. Um, here we got we got two more. What animal or fictional character could actually beat up Tocho, or is he just legit like indestructible? Well, I mean, if we're getting into fictional characters, <clears throat> you know, I doubt he could take on a dragon. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, look, dude, honestly, look at Mike the Tiger. You know what you should do? Look up the numbers on how many human beings tigers have killed. And I know that a lot of it is because there's just a ton of people in India, and it's impossible for tigers and humans not to run into one another. But, like, dude, tigers are some human <laughs> killers it is insane like numbers that feel like they should be reading off like car wrecks or something like it's like it's kind of crazy so no i don't think i don't think he could kill a big bengal tiger okay bro you know there's like literally there's i think multiple tigers that are just walking around knoxville tennessee right now <laughs> what they Dude, yeah, i mean head on swivel boys they can come from anywhere and like they i said true. they'll, they'll eat you yeah, there's no. That's why I don't like wild animals because there's no there's no reason I can't talk my way out of some of the live animal. All right, let's close with this. You've been fantastic. This has been my favorite interview. But let's just get down to to business here and have a Louis Armstrong sing off. And I'd say that Connor would be the judge, but he's biased and he's going to say you. So let's just say that our audience can can tell us who who wins. I will go first because I only know one line. I will only sing one line, and you already got to go at media day. So here is my Louis Armstrong impression going up against T Bob Abears. There you go. You're up. Okay, okay. Hold on, hold on. I'm grabbing a sip of water here. I gotta loosen the throat up. We've been talking for a little minute. We're gonna do this right. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue <laughs> for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Oh, it's good. It's good. You know, it just, what makes me so upset is that, like, when you started, I knew, I knew that you're right when you said the sentence. There can't be two impressions, uh, Louis Armstrong impressions of the party, but just for a brief moment in time, I sat there. Wondering if we were going to do that together, and, and we're mm-hmm. not. We're not. No. We are frozen. You know, but let me add this up right now, and this is maybe because I asked you 20 questions in a 10-question segment. But 69,000 points is a new, a new high score, T. Bob, and, and I don't, I don't wow. think it's ever going to be broken. Wait, how many points? 69,000. It's a little bit, it's a little bit bigger than your splits uh, on the O-line from, from 2010 or 2011 from last mile. A little bit bigger number there. Yeah, wait, where's this 69,000 coming from? I just wanted to say 69. That's, all, that's literally all it is. We don't really have it. <laughs> oh, my God. And so, and so you went to the 1,000 uh, yeah. simply because that is like, well, I mean, but then, then we run into, you might as well just say 69 infinity. I mean, just keep mm-hmm. extrapolating it out because yeah. then it's 69 million and then it's 69 trillion, gajillion, 69 to the 69th power. I mean, have you ever considered something like that? It's just like, 
It's just it's unbelievable right now. Yeah, we can we can add that up for next time. We're, we're gonna, next time we have you. Oh, you're saying I got the high number. score? I'm sorry, yeah. dude. I misunderstood it. Yeah. Oh, right on. Nice, <laughs> dude. <laughs> Bob, this has been just absolutely awesome. Appreciate you uh, being able to come on with us. I can't believe this is the first time we've had you on. We're definitely going to have to have you on during the season, maybe before a little Bama LSU, something like that. But uh, this has been great. And one of these days you'll you'll come on and you'll just convince us for a half hour why Star Wars is great. And you'll talk us into it. I have faith in that day. Look, if you ever wanted me to lay it out, I can lay it out. But, but ultimately, you got to want to take that plunge. you got to want to go on that journey. This is true. Steve Bob, we'll talk to you, man. Appreciate it. All right, boys. Thank you.